with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, we'll talk about China becomes the world's largest auto exporter in the first half of this year, and Fitch downgrades U.S. credit rating. And now, let's begin with our top story. In the first half of this year, China exported over two million vehicles, surpassing Japan and Germany to become the world's largest auto exporter for the first time. This is an increase of over 70% from the same period of last year. And China's auto exports expansion builds on the increased sales of new energy vehicles, which account for 25% of the total. So, what are the main reasons behind China overtaking its competitors, and how competitive? Are China's new energy vehicles on the global market? For more on this, join us on the line now are Yan Liang, professor of economics, Vidmet University, and also Ina Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, Ina, I will start from you first. What are the main factors do you think behind China's auto export surge for this year? Well, there's a number of them.、Uh, with the increasing cost and volatility of energy prices,、um, and also concern about the environment, people have been overwhelmingly pushing towards electronic vehicles, new energy vehicles, and China has been ready.、Uh, the rest of the you know, world has been caught kind of flat-footed.、Uh, they were their projections were much less aggressive than the reality that we see. So, for for instance. Uh, this year, it's projected to have 14 million、uh, units of sales by the end of 2023. That represents a 35% year-on-year increase,、um, with new purchases accelerating in the second half、um, by 4%. Uh, it's it really is a, a big game changer.、Mm-hmm. So yeah, so what proportion of China's cars are EV right now? And with the opening of the Tesla Gigafactory in Shanghai back in 2020, Chinese consumers have shown increasing interest in the new energy vehicles, right? So how do you think is China's consumers' interest to the EVs compare with car buyers globally? Right. So I think they're、um, really promising. Trend in China.、Um, the if you look at last year's number,、uh, the new auto sales、uh, reached about twenty six point seven, twenty six point eight million,、um, and EV was almost twenty percent of, of that. So you know, one out of five cars that are sold in China is、uh, it's an EV. It's either plug-in or battery. You know, electric、uh, vehicles. These are environmental friendly and they're efficient. And the projection is EV is going to account for 39% of the new vehicle sales in China by 2027. And so China is the leading country that is populating、um, EVs on their streets compared to, for example, United States.、Um, their EV shares right now is around 8%、um, And you mentioned the consumers' preferences. I think on the one hand,、um, there are a lot of You know、um, the kinds of promotion that we wanted to be green. We wanted to promote kinds of environmental, sustainable cars,、um, and, and and I think that you know provides the kinds of consumer education to let them form the kind of preference for more efficient and energy sustainable cars. On the other hand, the government has launched、um, series of regulations,、um, such as you know the incentives. 
to purchase vehicles. Um, for example, right now, uh, consumers buying electric vehicles exempted from vehicle purchases taxes. Um, and their cities also restrict the um, you know numbers of vehicles that can run on the street depending on their license plates, but EVs are exempted from some of these regulations. So this gives a lot of incentives for consumers. Um, and going back to your previous question, I think you know the EV industry is growing so rapidly and so well in China. Um, it's not only because China has the first mover advantages, uh, even though you know Tesla is one of the first, but China has a lot of local uh, automobile. Um, makers are joining the bandwagon to try to promote their own EV brands. Um, but also the government has been pr providing a lot of incentives and consumers are on board. So I think all these um, really help to pave the way um, for China's EV industry. Mm -hmm. So Anna, so what do you think has the government done right in developing such an important industry in China? Well, I mean, first off, you have to consider what China started doing years ago, which mm -hmm. was creating an environment where they could do it. I mean, batteries do not just appear by themselves. So uh, they looked at the basic level of production, what was necessary, like raw materials, cobalt, lithium, manganese, and nickel. Now, these aren't really available uh, in great in the quantities needed within China. So they went to Chile, Australia, Bolivia. They negotiated supply chains so that they could uh, get the raw materials into China. And as a result, now they have everything they need. And this, this goes really to the quality of China's supply chain management. They saw the opportunity, they acted on it. Um, I think between 2018 and the second, first half of 2021, there's about you know, a little over 4.3 billion uh, that was invested in just lithium mines internationally by uh, Chinese uh, entities. So, you know, as expected by 2019, China makes up 80% of the world's output for battery materials. Hmm. Very important. Also putting into place all of the infrastructure. China has, uh, what, 1.6, over 1.6 million chargers. And some of them can charge your car in as little as uh, 20 minutes. Uh, that's down from overnight a few years ago because of a different kind of battery technology. Um, and then, of course, everything that Yana said about um, encouraging people to be environmentally uh, friendly, the fact that um, you can get a license plate for an electric vehicle um, more easily, and you don't have restrictions on when you can drive it. So these have all been part of a whole plan uh, that has been carefully implemented. And it really shows the strength of China's ability to you know, see objectives and achieve them. And there's really no other nation on earth that has had the ability to do this. And everyone right now is just playing catch up. Mm. And so, yeah, actually, Aina mentioned the battery and charging facilities. At the beginning of the development of the modern EV, people talk about how difficult it was to lay out these uh, charging stations because it's expensive and it wasn't easy to get investment. So how did China address these issues? Well, I think if the will is there, the money is there, the manpower is there. Um, so it's very important to put in this base infrastructure to promote the EV industry. So I think it's clear that the government is putting into a lot of the funds um, to establish these, um, you know, charging stations and that the government is not only on the central level, uh, but also at the local level. Um, so I think, you know, just like what I know was mentioning, this is a whole supply chain efforts. It's trying to going from, you know, mining, 
to, you know, all these batteries and to the vehicles themselves and then to, you know, the sort of the after sales of vehicles, how you'll be able to put up the charging stations um, to complete the entire sort of supply chain. So um, I think that this whole effort, um, not only in every steps along the way, but also at every level, including government, uh, at central level, local level, also the entrepreneurs. Mm. Um, there are so many, you know, startups in China, um, like Neo, like Xiaopeng, like uh, Neta, all these startups coupled with, you know, the international competitors like Tesla and some of the more uh, older establishments like BYD and Wuling, Sherry. And I think that creates a really good dynamic, a very good ecosystem um, where, you know, the government is supporting and building all these necessary infrastructure. And at the same time, a lot of these entrepreneurs are competing, innovating and providing the best vehicles. And I think that it's really the way um, for this industry to continue to grow. Mm. So I know we are now seeing the intense competition in the EV industry from the U.S. and European countries, of course, and the U.S. started to give subsidies to encourage the uh, domestic production and purchase of the electric vehicles. So what do you make of that? Will it work in the long term in supporting the U.S. EV industry? The simple answer is no. Uh, subsidies don't work because uh, what what you're in essence doing is you're saying, well, we couldn't afford to make it here if you know if <laughs> Europe and the United States were the places uh, com- that were competitive to make these things, um, they would be doing it, but they're not. Right. So I think we need to look at this maybe uh, in a more sort of balanced way. I agree with Ina that subsidies is not a panacea. It's not as if you throw the money into the industry that this industry is going to grow. But then I also don't want to discount some of the benefits um, to the enterprises for getting these subsidies from the government in, for example, putting into their um, R&D development or, uh, you know, when the government provides incentives for enterprises to move their productions there. So I think that just sends the sort of signal to China and other countries as well, for that matter, that we need to continue to innovate. And I think China has the first mover advantages, as I just mentioned, that it has such a complete supply chain and the entire supply chain, it's so um, innovative. Um, Tape battery, for example, I think China now is really developing a lot of new alternatives to the conventional, you know, lithium ion batteries. Um, Right now, for example, the LFP battery has been uh, really popular in China. Mm. Um, And so that is really one thing that I think China and other countries as well can continue to move on. And other innovations could include, for example, putting new features, more consumer-friendly and consumer-preference kind of um, uh, features. Um, I have read some reports about, you know, some of the Chinese brands, you know, they can detect the driver's mood, they can put the music, you know, to accommodate, uh, you know, the driver's needs. And so there are all a, a lot of these interesting features that are very consumer, you know, oriented. I think that would also help the, the, the Chinese vehicles, you know, to, um, to be more competitive. Um, I think one of the things that, you know, China need to avoid, like other countries, is to avoid the kinds of cut-through price competition, um, which I think, you know, in in the past, China has some lesson to to learn um, that, you know, just rely on price competition is not going to go very far. Mm. So really innovation is is the key. And last but not least, I also think that in addition to just the, uh, you know, the the consumer-facing kinds of electric vehicles, China also have a lot of advantages in, for example, electric bus. I think that is often, uh, you know, neglected, but that's super important to really, when we think about sustainability, 
uh, populating electric buses and other public transit, which again, China has the first mover advantages that would also help China, you know, to, to be more competitive in the market. Mm. Uh, and not to mention the autonomous vehicles, um, you know, this year, the level three AV are going to enter the market. So basically, I think, you know, the competition is going to ratchet up as countries are putting resources and uh, uh, policy support. But I think, you know, that just means we need to do better. We need to innovate better. We need to, you know, putting more resources and, um, you know, manpower and talent um, to continue to develop the industry. Mm. And Yan, so when we talk about the development of China's EV industry, we have to mention a city in Anhui province, that is uh, Hefei. And in year 2020, you know, the Chinese EV maker Neo was the, on the verge of collapse when Hefei invested 5 billion yuan. And Neo then moved its China headquarters and some production facilities to the city. And in less than two years, uh, Neo had recovered and its share price jumped. And the city also made a return of up to over five times its initial investment. So what does this tell us? Right, I think that is a great example um, that how government policy, government support, you know, could be really important and helpful um, for private enterprises. So I think what we're really seeing here is a very interesting case of, you know, public and private sort of initiative. And this is at a much bigger, larger scale. In this case, um, the very early $1 billion funding really provides a lifeline um, to the to NEO by the Hefei government. But in addition to that, I think, you know, this is a this is a good location um, that is avoid from you know the, the very intense competition in, for example, Shanghai. Right, the Tesla has mega factories in Shanghai that drives up the resources prices, you know, drive up workers' prices and so on and so forth. So moving away from those really competitive plays um, gives Neo a advantage. Now in um, Hefei, where the government support is there. They also have very good planning to build, for example, the 16-anchor droid plant um, outside of the city downtown, just minutes away from it. And it employs, you know, over 12,000 workers. Most of them are, you know, technicians from the state-owned automaker JAC Motors. So here what you see is a very interesting phenomenon where this new uh, private enterprise is partnered with the sort of the traditional uh, big, gigantic, and less dynamic state-owned enterprises, and both of them are having the kind of complementarity, um, where you know one has the technicians and some of the old kind of sort of assets, where the other one is a new with a new technology. So we see a really interesting marriage, so to mm. speak, that really revitalize um, the state-owned enterprises on the one hand, but also help to rejuvenize these private enterprises that was not in a great shape at that time. Um, so I think this is a really interesting case study, and I know there was a new book out, out called the New China Playbook, and these kinds of local government uh, in supporting new industry, in supporting new kind of uh, economy is featured in the book. Um, so I definitely think this could be a very interesting example for other cities, other uh, provinces, and other localities to, in some ways, learn learn from. Now, not to say just to completely copy exactly the same model, but just to say there are a lot of structural changes that could happen in, in China that would really provide a new engine of growth. Mm. So, Aina, so what do you think about this uh, Hefei model? A lot of the people talk about it. And what are the model's essential ingredients, do you think? 
Well, I mean, if to simplify it, it's a unique combination of local government investment and private enterprise. And, you know, it's been very, very successful, not only with automobiles, uh, but also uh, other high-end uh, manufacturing, um, biotech and semiconductors. So it's it's been applied in other places. But I completely agree with you. And this is not something you just uh, cut and paste. Mm. Uh, these are principles. This is understanding what uh, is needed. Now, when Neo went out there, there were people like, whoa, you know, they're building a huge factory in the middle of nowhere. You know, does this even make sense? Will there be enough demand? Luckily, the demand came and now they look uh, very good. But it wasn't just uh, themselves. I mean, Neo partnered with ABB of Sweden, ARO of France, DPROG mm. of Germany and Stanley Bear Group. Um, they have 307 robots all right. You, you, when you look at the factory floor, you don't see anybody. Uh, that, and they have achieved 100% automation of the main connections in the bodywork with an overall workshop automation of 97.5%. That means they can, with very little, uh, you know, human uh, value, produce 24/7, very, very efficiently, and at the top things. And the automation also ensures a top quality product. And this is very important because everyone says, oh, you produce them. But the real question for you know uh, these makers is who is going to survive? And that's going to depend on the customer experience and loyalty to that brand based on you know whether it was good. Mm -hmm. Well, we're speaking with Ina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute and also Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Willamette University. And after a short break, we'll talk about Fitch Dungry's U.S. credit rating. Stay with us. Welcome. I'm Elaf Ellard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. You're listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Rating agency Fitch has recently downgraded the U.S. government's top credit rating by a step, setting a growing federal debt burden and an erosion of governance. The agency also expects the U.S. to enter a recession. So Ina, Fitch recently downgraded the U.S. government debt by one notch. So what's your take on the Fitch's U.S. debt downgrade? Well, I, I, I'd agree. The, the real question isn't uh, what Fitch did. It's really why didn't Moody's and S&P follow along? Uh, they're trying to send a warning message to Washington that things, the ship has to be righted uh, or it will sink. Um, but, you know, based on what has happened in the past, when S&P downgraded the U.S. two weeks later, uh, they were investigated. Uh, and that seems to be a pattern out there. We're still waiting to see if there will be repercussions for Fitch. But um, you, you just can't do anything about the structural issues right now because of this political division. Mm. Democrats and Republicans can't agree on how to deal with the massive deficit or how to go forward, even on infrastructure. They basically said we need X for infrastructure. And instead of voting X for that, they said half of X. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like anything, if you only do it halfway, it's not done. So, Aina, we now have two of the three major credit rating agencies downgrading the U.S. debt, the Fitch and S&P back in 2011. So what might it mean for the U.S. economy and the markets? 
Well, I mean, right now, you, you S&P restored uh, the AAA rating uh, uh, to the government, but you have seen a rating a downgrade in terms of the private debt. Uh, the banks especially were downgraded. Uh, this is uh, pretty serious because the rating agencies, uh, I've dealt with them extensively because I was uh, in charge of, my, of a city's uh, debt commission, uh, how we borrowed and uh, et cetera, and how we were rated. And I dealt with the uh, rating agencies. But, you know, they're sending a warning shot across the bows of, you know, the good ship America saying you cannot continue. There's an iceberg ahead. And if you run into it, you're going to sink. Um, and people just don't believe it. And I, I think that this incredulity is is really hurting the U.S. They have to open their eyes and say, look, we tell the rest of the world to, you know, <laughs> manage their economies responsibly, not to drive up big debts. Meanwhile, hypocritically, they're piling on debt. So at this juncture, I mean, it's it's a, a warning shot. It will continue if two, if another credit rating agency of the top three, um, Moody's or S&P, were to in fact downgrade uh, U.S. debt, it would lead to a massive increase on what's paying. Now, remember, this year alone, there's going to be uh, the debt payment has almost doubled, and it's going to be the largest uh, percentage it's ever been of the U.S. budget uh, because there is no plan in place uh, to reduce it. So they're just going to keep borrowing more and more money to pay the debts um, that they, they can't pay back. So uh, very, very, very troubling. Uh, a downgrade in debt means that uh, most uh, entities require two ratings of triple A. Uh, for certain kinds of instruments that are held by banks or trusts, et cetera, they would have to switch out of U.S. treasuries mm. and find something else. Uh, they would be going to other countries, Norway, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, places that still maintain a double A rating. And as a result, uh, that is going to be disastrous for the U.S. economy. Now, it gets worse, a downward spiral if people lose faith in the uh, U.S. dollar and they start saying, I don't want to hold dollars. Uh, that means they're going to start selling treasuries and that will further uh, increase uh, the amount that they have to um, put these out at uh, in order to get investors. So they'll have to increase, the more they increase, the more they have to pay. So it's a, a very, very deep downward spiral and it's not good for the world. Uh, that kind of change would be very difficult, but you see countries everywhere around the world from South America, Africa, Middle East, uh, Asia, even Europe, trying to figure out how they can de-risk, how they can get rid of this issue uh, and protect themselves from a weakening dollar. Mm. And what do you think is the structural problems of the U.S. economy now, especially after so much round of interest rate hikes by the Federal Reserve? Well, I, there's two ones that I always point to. The first one is that a lot of the inflation that is being ha had uh, in the United States that they can't control is related to service sectors. So uh, UPS uh, drivers are now going to be paid on average $176,000 a year uh, with uh, benefits, etc. That is um, part of a spiraling wage increase um, that isn't controllable by the Fed. I mean, uh, you look at hospitals, it's up over 200% over the last 20 years. Um, education is about 175%. And you go down, anything associated with labor internal to the United States uh, massive increases in, in wages. Um, so that's an area that they, they, they really cannot uh, control. The other one is, of course, uh, debt. Mm. Uh, they have no idea of how they're going to uh, pay it back. The last part 
is they have an issue with competitiveness. Um, you know, as we've seen with TSMC, the U.S. has been trying to pull uh, manufacturing of high-tech chips back to the United States. But what have we seen? We've seen delays. Uh, TSMC has already said that any chip made in the United States versus the exact identical chip made in Taiwan will cost 30% more. Mm. This reflects the fact that the U.S. is not competitive. And remember, there were massive subsidies uh, given to TSMC to locate in the United States. So despite these massive subsidies, it is not competitive. And this is one of the main issues. You can throw money at it, but it doesn't change the underlying issues, especially as related to service-side inflation due to wage increases. So, yeah, so Joe Biden issued an executive order aimed at uh, restricting the certain American investments in some sensitive high-tech areas in China. So what do you make of it? Well, I think this is just another step um, towards the sort of technological decoupling, um, and that's quite concerning. Um, I think, you know, there's definitely a lot of, you know, details to be to be revealed. It's still not quite clear um, what exactly are some of the areas that will be strictly prohibited, such as AI, um, or there are other areas that just need to be sort of uh, reported to the government. There are also questions about, you know, what are the military application of AIs versus the more civilized civilian uses of AIs. And so there are a lot of still murkiness about um, this EO. Um, and I think the more details will be, uh, you know, reviewed as time goes on, and also how this would exactly affect businesses' investments. Um, because I agree with what Aina was saying, if the businesses really seize the opportunity to invest in China, they will find ways to do so um, in other roundabout ways. Um, but I think at least at the, um, you know, the, the rhetoric level, I think this is again, another sort of um, negative development in the US-China sort of economic relationships and another move to politicize the kinds of economic connections, which I think is very concerning. Um, I think, you know, both countries are really now are confronted with this common enemy of climate change and China really is occupying a critical, um, you know, note in the global supply chain of clean energies and clean energy, uh, you know, vehicles and other products. So it's very important for the US and China to cooperate um, to develop technologies to populate all these um, environmental sustainability services and products to confront with these common enemies. My hope is that, you know, that the U.S. administrations in some ways will rethink their, their positionalities in this, these kinds of matters. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Willamette University, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. 